This is Our American Stories. And you're listening to John Williams on the piano right now. Born on this day in history, in 1932. He's an American composer, conductor, and pianist. And you're about to hear one heck of a story this hour. He's a giant, a name you may not know, but my goodness, you know his work. And you're really going to know his work and him and his life story when we're done here. With a career spanning over six decades, he has composed some of the most popular and recognizable film scores in cinematic history. To many of the highest grossing films of all time, including Jaws, the Star Wars series, Superman, E.T., Indiana Jones series, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, and the first three Harry Potter films. Williams has been associated with director Steven Spielberg since 1974, composing music for all but two of his feature films. Other notable works by Williams include theme music for the Olympic Games, That's enough right there for a career, don't you think? NBC Sunday Night Football, the mission theme used by NBC News, the television series Lost in Space and Land of the Giants, and the incidental music for the first season of Gilligan's Island. Williams has composed numerous classical concer- con- Williams has composed numerous classical concerti and other works for orchestral ensembles and solo instruments, too. He served as the Boston Pops principal conductor from 1980 to 1993 and is now the orchestra's laureate conductor. John Williams has been nominated for 50 Academy Awards, winning five, six Emmy Awards, winning three, 25 Golden Globe Awards, winning four, 66 Grammys, winning 22, With 50 Oscar nominations, Williams currently holds the record for the most Oscar nominations for a living person and is the second most nominated person in Academy Award history behind, well, a little guy named Walt Disney with 59. 45 of Williams' Oscar nominations are for Best Original Score, five are for Best Original Song, He won four Oscars for Best Original Score and one for Best Scoring, Adaption, and Original Song Score. And just listen to that theme from Star Wars. If that doesn't take you to another galaxy far, far away, you might want to check your pulse. In 2005, the American Film Institute selected Williams' score to 1977 Star Wars as the greatest American film score of all time. The soundtrack to Star Wars was preserved by the Library of Congress into the National Recording Registry for being, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Williams was inducted into the Hollywood Bowls Hall of Fame in 2000, and was a recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors in 2004 and the AFI Life Achievement Award in 2016. He composed the score for eight movies in the top 20 highest-grossing movies in U.S. box office history. That's just crazy. Here's Steven Spielberg honoring John Williams 
from the Kennedy Center Awards in 2004. Well, it's a great honor to be here to uh, stand in the long shadow that John Williams cast and attempt to shed some light on it. John Williams reinterprets our films with a musical narrative that makes our hearts pound during action cliffhanger scenes, gets the audience to scream when we were hoping they would do so, and pushes that same audience from the brink to breaking out into applause. It's not Hollywood he writes for, he writes for all of you. Did you ever hear a seven-year-old hum the first nine notes from Darth Vader's theme? <laughs> or see a bunch of kids jumping into a swimming pool going, da-dun, da-dun, da-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. The day that John called me over to his house, he was very pleased because he had just completed the score for Jaws, and he wanted to play some of the main themes on the piano. And I sat next to him, and he just used four fingers, and he began going, da, 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 that was it. And I said, that's all? <laughs> he, he said, I really think that's all you need. <laughs> I think John Williams is a national treasure. He's as American as apple pie and President Bush's mom. And John, you're the greatest thing that has ever happened to my career. And for that, I want to thank you. And I congratulate you for this exceptional honor. And imagine hearing those words from someone like Steven Spielberg. It's pretty heady. And by the way, we know this about Bernard Herrmann's very simple soundtrack to Psycho. The same thing, well, Hitchcock probably would have said, is that all? Those few violins going back and forth? And it makes Jaws. I mean, that soundtrack makes the suspense. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about this remarkable life. We're going to take you from his birth in Floral Park, New York, straight up to the present. Because, well, he's still doing what he does. We're going to go out with the Jaws soundtrack. More on the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932.
This is Our American Stories. You're listening to John Williams' score in Jurassic Park. And for the hour, we're going to spend time with John, his life. Born on this day in history in 1932, Greg, during the break, was making a, a comment that modern classical music is the scores to movies because the postmodernist stuff that's in concert halls, no one wants to listen to. And so this is our classical music, and John Williams, well, there's no one better at it. Williams was born on February 8th, 1932, in Floral Park, New York, the son of Esther and Johnny Williams. Here, he talks about his early life and one of the most profound moments that he experienced as a child. At home, there was always music in the house because my father was a professional musician, and he played the drums and percussion in radio orchestras in the 1930s and 40s, way back then. And we had a piano in the living room on which I practiced every day because he insisted that I have piano lessons. But we also had a basement in our house where there was another piano, a little older piano, which is where my brother, who played the drums, or the neighborhood kids who played the clarinet and the trumpet would come. We wouldn't go to the living room. My my mother might not appreciate it. We had our little jam session, so to speak, in the basement of the house. One of the most profound experiences that I had as a child was playing the piano, and my little neighbor friend had a trumpet, and to discover when he played the trumpet, some of you may know that a trumpet, well, there are many keys, but usually the key of B-flat. So to play my piano music with me, I had to write the note, once get a sheet of music paper, and write for the trumpet the notes one step higher so that I could play along with him. And when that happened, that seemed like a miracle to me, (laughs) that actually something I'd put down with my hand, even though it was my own music, made it possible for us to play together. The fun of that and the sense of discovery of, of, of that one could adjust, manipulate, arrange music, and then have the joy of doing it with someone else was, I think, one of the most profound experiences I had as a young person studying music. And a series of moments where I discovered, I'll use the word again, the joy of making music together. Already an aspiring musician at such a young age, Williams would eventually begin reading about orchestration. I didn't have an idea in my mind until well into my teenage years that one could be a composer professionally. I didn't, I didn't have that idea. But by the time I was in high school, I was able to, as we'd say, orchestrate, to arrange music for orchestra. We had a student orchestra. The reason for that was because my father had books on theory and orchestration in the house that I used to love to read and try to understand. And he would explain to me a little bit. Later on, teachers did also. John Williams then began to apply his craft in Hollywood. Let's hear him tell that story. The first work that I did in the Hollywood film studios was as a pianist. Uh, I, they, they, in, the, in the old Columbia studios where they had a contract orchestra, there was an opening position for piano, which I auditioned for, and I was hired by the then music director, Mara Stoloff, who the young people will not remember. So that meant that every day, Monday through Friday, four or five days a week, I sat in the orchestra at Columbia Studios playing under Mr. Stoloff's direction and watching him underscore films that, about westerns or or love stories, or scary films, or comedies, or whatever, and uh, had a first-hand view as an orchestra member of how this process of creating and, and, and fitting music to film went. 
And two or three years into my time at, at the orchestra there, the same gentleman asked, said, would you, would you prepare the music for one scene for next week's recording? So I did one scene for next week's recording, and apparently it worked out well enough <laughs> that he said, you do two scenes for us, we're a little short this week, maybe three a month <laughs> later. So it was a very in series of steps, or increments, if you like to say. I progressed from the piano bench of sitting in the orchestra and playing the piano to a young man sitting not far from the music library writing the music for next Tuesday's recording. So what's the biggest challenge for John Williams? He says writing themes like the Imperial March for Darth Vader. The themes in these movies, I think for me at least, are the most difficult things to write. But I will look at a film like Star Wars, for example, and there'll be a character. There is Darth Vader. We've never seen him before with that helmet that's on there. And he's terrifying. And I try to analyze what this character is. This is somebody who's imperious, meaning great authority and great power. And also frightening in many ways. And also has a military bearing about it. Those qualities are starting points for me. To, to develop musical phrases that would fit this kind of a character. So I, I think that the trick is to think about the person we're writing for, try to get inside that person to the, to the qualities and characteristics that he or she shows us and try to describe that musically. And, and that's the, the, probably for me the biggest challenge and the, and the most difficult thing to get just right. The Imperial March is first heard in The Empire Strikes Back in low piccolos as the Galactic Empire sends probe droids across the galaxy in search of Luke Skywalker. Its major opening occurs as Star Destroyers amass, and Darth Vader is first presented in the film. Let's take a minute to just listen to the rest of The Imperial March by John Williams.
The soundtrack for Star Wars won an Academy Award for Best Original Score in 1977, along with a Golden Globe and three Grammys. Here's John Williams describing the difference between composing music for film and composing for a live audience. When we're writing music for film, or preparing any part of the film, we need to think that probably the audience is going to see and hear this once. They will maybe do, see it repeatedly, and that's what people usually do. But unless, they, unless the first impression is a good impression, I think mm-hmm. the, the assumption that we're going to see and hear it once is a, is a fair one. Also, the complication with music is that, in the, unlike a concert where there's only music that we hear, in the film we hear the music, we hear the sound of the spaceship, we hear the sound of the guns, the sound of the dialogue. So we have to understand the music is part of a, a, a whole that if we try, as a composer, if I try to take the whole of everyone's attention the way I would in a concert hall, it won't succeed. We have to find our place in the hierarchy or in the level of where the dialogue, the words go, the sound effects, the explosions and the sword sounds go, and where the music goes. And that's got to be a wedded unity, one thing uh, that that is the object of how we try to make, marry the, the music to the film. And when we come back, more on the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932. And we leave you here with the score, the soundtrack from Superman. This is Our American Stories. We're celebrating the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932. And we're listening to him, to the fallen, from Saving Private Ryan. Let's take a listen. Thank you. 
Williams is often asked what his favorite film score was. Here's his answer. I think for me, the music for E.T., the combination of that film with that particular score, I think in, in its entirety, for me personally, I think is the one that we got, that came closest to being ideally right in every scene. Here's that theme from E.T. The score was the fourth in history to accomplish the feat of winning the Academy Award, Golden Globe, Grammy, and BAFTA. The two previous were Star Wars and Jaws. They were also composed by Williams, who remains the only person to have won all awards for the same score more than once. To date, a total of only six scores have won all four awards. Sometimes it can be difficult to get a piece of music to fit properly into any given scene. Here, John Williams tells a story about the difficulty of getting this music to fit the ending scene of E.T. I did have an experience with Steven Spielberg at the end of E.T. where music was about 10 minutes for the last reel. Children are chasing, escaping from police and so on very quickly. And... I, I made several takes and I could not make it fit the film. So finally, Stephen said, "We'll turn the film off. We just play the music the way you want to play it, and I will re-edit the film to it." Which he did. I wish I could do it all the time; it would make life, <laughs> make life a lot easier. But I also, when I look at that scene now, I think some, there's something sort of operatic about the way the orchestra was playing it, mm-hmm. that w- they were let free to go. Free they weren't watching me to what's coming the next cue. We would just play the, you know. And I think it gave some luft, lift to the, to the final scene. The performance of the orchestra animates the f- film in a way that film cannot live without music. It's true. It really cannot. We try. You take the film away and it looks dead, whatever. The, mm-hmm. the, I think it's safe and correct to say that. And by the way, what insight Spielberg had. I mean, how many directors would say, well, let's just reshoot what I shot. Your music's more important. What insight. By the way, John Williams enjoys what he does, and he has some great advice for young people. One of my great good fortunes is that work for me is fun, and it's what I do every day. I write something every day, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Just the habit, the practice of truly six and a half days a week, something goes on paper. You know what I would say to young people is really what I say to myself. I mean, if you can, if you can find the joy in music... And find first of all, life is a great gift. Life itself is just that we're here and we think and we can share things and see what's beautiful, hear what's beautiful. Music first among all of the sounds, we think. Some of us musicians do. But find the joy in music. Find the joy in life. Find the joy in each other. Find the joy in work. Uh, and And life becomes really very, very beautiful that way. I think go out and find the joy. Great advice. Williams loves young people, and young people, well, they love him too. Especially these two kids who made a spontaneous decision to set up and play the Star Wars theme in front of John Williams' house on July of 2016, with a high part played by 13-year-old trumpeter Bryce Hayashi and the lower flugelhorn part played by Michael Miller. John Williams, the master himself, comes out to greet the kids and the mom who was running the camera. 
my screen. Are you recording? Hello. I started to listen. I thought, oh, they would never make it, and they did. <laughs> he made it. He's, He's thirteen. Fantastic. He's thirteen. This is Bryce Hayashi. By the way, that John Williams didn't call security, that he came out and greeted these these two young people. What a gift itself, and what a person. And it just tells you a lot about his nature and his character. I mean, the last thing necessarily he might want is, you know, random musicians coming in front of his house. But he's touched, actually. He knows what this took. He knows it was an offering. And boy, you want to talk about the word joy? There it is, folks. That's it. Here, John Williams explains the process of preparing to write a score for a movie. If I don't read a script, I'm very happy because I look at this director's cut, I don't know what's happening next. And I'm bored or I'm excited and I need to have that memory when I write. I think this is maybe a boring moment. Maybe I can do something in the sound of this thing that will improve the situation. So for me, the first thing is the rhythm of the film. And then character and texture and style and all the other endless elements that go into it. But a director's cut is an invaluable thing for me. It'd be wonderful if we hear some music and we say it could only be it could be only belong to that film it's not always possible to get that kind of uh, curve in the sculpture you know but we try and try he did and try he does when we come back more on the life of john williams born on this day in history in 1932 as always all of our this days in history are are brought to us by the great folks at hillsdale college and if you can't get to hillsdale hillsdale can come to you Go to hillsdale.edu to see all of their great courses that are available online for free. There are 16 of them in total. We're closing this segment out with John Williams' soundtrack and score from Born on the 4th of July. And by the way, anyone who thought that that Tom Cruise couldn't act, this was one heck of a piece of acting by Tom Cruise, too. Thank you.
is Our American Stories for the hour, the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932, nominated for 50 Academy Awards. And you're listening to the soundtrack to Close Encounters of a Third Kind. Williams wrote the score for Schindler's List. The album won the Academy Award for Best Original Score, the BAFTA Award for Best Film Music, and the Grammy Award for Best Score Soundtrack for Visual Media. It also received a Golden Globe Award nomination for the Best Original Score. Here, Williams talks about working with violin player Itzhak Perlman. Steven Spielberg made a beautiful movie, which most people will remember. And... In one of the early scripts, it called for a violinist to play a Jewish gentleman entertaining the German officers in, in an officers club. And the scene, alas, was not used. But because it was part of the original plan, I said to Stephen, we have to have a violinist to do this thing. So I asked Itzhak Perlman if he would come and do it, and he said yes. Knowing I was writing these notes for Itzhak Perlman, knowing his sound, it really led me, I think, where I hoped where I needed to go. I had known him for 20 years or more. Every time I saw him, this is before the film, he would say, John, when are you going to have a film that I can play the violin? Every time I see him. So finally, this came along, listen, I called up and I said, Itzhak, I have a film that you would be interested in. Oh, I don't know. I don't think I want to do a film. <laughs> so, yeah. I said, I think you should look at this thing. Maybe it's exactly. something you should want to do. He came crazy. So he came up to Boston. We were called Symphony Hall with the orchestra there. And he looked a little bit at the film. And he just, he couldn't, it's so emotional, some of the scenes in there. He didn't want to look at it to rehearse. He said, we would just play. I don't want to see it. No. He brought his great art to the film. And uh, which embraces his feeling, his history, his all of, all of it, you know. So he is a, it is the film, it is the music, it is his voice. Um, it suggests so much rich history of all of, the, all of the story. Let's take a minute to listen to the music from Schindler's List.
Another major film score by the great John Williams that cannot go without mention is the theme from the Indiana Jones series. Here's Steven Spielberg and John Williams talking about the production of this iconic theme. Too heavy. heavy. Too heavy. Yeah. Too oh, heavy yeah. Let me let me just uh, okay. react to what we've heard. John, you know, he he'd actually written two Raiders themes. He had written. Play that for me. Which I freaked out over. I loved it so much. Then he said, and here's another possible Raiders score, uh, Raiders' main theme, and he played. And, and so he had had two choices, and I think my only input was to say, can't you use both? And he did. He made the latter the bridge, and he made the former the main theme. That's a perfect example of the kind of collaboration that we have, we have done with these things. Interesting about that. Da, 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 dee, da, da, da. A very simple little sequence of notes. But I spend more time on those little bits of musical grammar to get them just right so that they seem inevitable seem like they've always been there, they're so simple. And uh, I don't know how many permutations I will go through with a six-note motif like that, one note down, one note up, and spend a lot of time on these little simplicities, which are often the hardest things to capture, I think, for anybody. John Williams won the 44th Annual American Film Institute Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. During his acceptance speech, he had this to say about music and film. Music is like architecture, sculpture, and so on, thousands of years old. And film is the new kid on the block, 100 years barely. And though we will watch its evolution carefully, side by side with the art of music, I am enormously grateful, as all composers are, to film for giving us the broadest possible audience worldwide that any composer has ever enjoyed. I, uh, I'm certain that Beethoven would have shunned it but Wagner would have had his own studio out there in Burbank <laughs> with, a, with a huge water tank with a W on it. Williams then thanked George Lucas. George Lucas. George Lucas, certainly a genius. George, you've given me the greatest opportunity in the broadest canvas to write themes for characters. Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Anakin, Luke and Leia, The Force, and so on. For the first film, George, I even wrote, you'll remember, a quite heated love theme with, with, a, with a melody and a development section and a torrid climax, thinking that Luke and Leia were lovers. <laughs> and, and I found out two years later that they were brother and sister. And then he gave thanks to a colleague Director Steven Spielberg, who he'd worked with since 1974, again, composing music for all but two of Spielberg's feature films. Steven and I have worked together for, I don't know, 43 or 4 years, something amazing. And it's like a perfect marriage, you know, we really have never had an argument of any kind. And it is a testament to this man's humanity and his loyalty and his patience and his very good taste. <laughs> Williams then shares a story about working with Spielberg on the soundtrack of Schindler's List. I have a 
have a favorite Steven Spielberg story that I want to share with you. And that has to do with the film Schindler's List, which you will all remember. And Steven came back with his film to show me the first cut, as he always does. And we went to his projection room, and the purpose of this was to see the film and then discuss the music for the film. And you'll remember the film. It's the story of Oskar Schindler, who's a German civilian who protected and employed potential victims for the Holocaust. Powerful masterpiece of a film. And the film ends in the state of Israel, you remember, and the survivors and their children go to the graveside of Oskar Schindler to place stones on the graveside to honor the memory of, of Oskar Schindler. And the lights came up and the film was over and it was time for Stephen and me to begin to talk about the role of the music. And I was so overwhelmed by the film, I really could not speak. And I went out and walked around the building for a few minutes to gather myself and came back in to start the meeting with Stephen. And I said, Stephen, this is truly a great film. And you need a better composer than I am for this film. And he said very sweetly, I know, but they're all dead. <laughs> and there you have it. The life of John Williams. And really, 55 Academy Award nominations. Only Walt Disney had more at 59. And my goodness... The numbers, five Oscars, three Emmys, 66 Grammy Awards, and he won 22 of them. And so we end as we begin the soundtrack from Star Wars. This is Our American Stories, the life of John Williams, brought to us as always by our friends at Hillsdale College. is our american stories and we tell all sorts of stories here on our show about everything music business history sports but we especially love sharing stories that help us develop lasting healthy relationships from the start and one of our favorite guests is a medical doctor in north carolina who does much much more than treat symptoms her patients affectionately call her dr rose and so do we and we're so glad she's here to share some of her experience Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein has been a pediatrician for 23 years 
and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. She's also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills, and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. Dr. Rose, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. So happy to be here. You bet. And we like to do a story each week, problem on the first segment. When we get to that second segment, solution, talk about this next story with us. Yes, uh, I'm thinking about a young girl um, that had been coming, has been coming to my clinic since she was a very little girl. And now this young lady is 20 years old. Uh, but a few years ago, when she was about 16, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, she developed several medical problems at one time. And I'll explain to you the, the, the whatever reasons, because there were many of them. Uh, you see, she had always been a bit of a, a an anxious Nelly, let's say, and she she was um, sort of torn up in fear about what her future would hold and and what would happen if she didn't get all A's or what would happen if anything would happen to her family. And, and Monica was just it has been just the sweetest girl, always thinking about others not doesn't think a lot about herself but wants to be the perfect child and and the perfect student uh and then something horrible happened her sister uh was dating a guy and the sister got pregnant uh with this guy but what happens that the guy was not such a swell guy and the guy stuck around the house and made advances to Monica but Monica didn't want to tell anybody because she knew that her sister was already pregnant, and here's this guy making advances to her. So she was afraid that she would unglue her family. Her worst fears right here had occurred, and she developed the worst headaches, the worst abdominal pain, and she was not able to sleep at night under the huge burden of should I tell my family about what happened to me, what I know about this guy, or should I not? And we didn't know that this was at the center of this girl's medical problem, and it was indeed causing medical problems. She, she had developed migraines, which were a family history of something that she had, uh, but they also induced uh, some uh, reflux and also uh, gastritis problems that would not go away. She was therefore uh, referred over to a, a psychiatrist and also to a neurologist and a gastroenterologist who all put her on a different set of medications. But no matter what we would do, Monica would not feel any better. And she was up at night and she was getting more and more nervous because here, here she is in her junior year and she's getting close to the time to graduate, and she had her hopes and dreams, and she's seeing them crash to the floor. And meanwhile, her first little lovely niece uh, has just been born, and she still doesn't know whether to tell anybody. So you can see where this girl had an incredible dilemma, and she hid it all because she just didn't know which was the right decision for her to make, but at the same time, she's, she's having these horrible health issues that just were crippling her and not allowing her to go to school. 
And this is the power of stress, too. I mean, stress can really brutalize the body, can it? Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt uh, that Miss Monica was obviously feeling this pain, feel, having gastritis, having the headaches, and truly not able, because of all of these things, not able to sleep at night. And poor Monica had lost somewhere between 10 and 20 pounds uh, at any given moment, and she was unable to eat but bites at a time for days. And a mom watching this really has no idea what's going on, right? we got about a minute here, Dr. Rose, and then we're going to get on the other side of this, oh, and we're going to get the solution. But what about the mom? What is she thinking right now? That is a great point, because I've known this mom uh, since uh, we were both pretty, you know, reasonably young. Uh, and her mom just couldn't understand why a young girl, and if, if you see Monica, she is beautiful. She is so lovely inside and out. Beautiful long hair, the, the most beautiful big brown eyes, and just such, such a beauty to behold. And mom is seeing her, uh, her, her promise for her future, uh, for this girl's future just fade away. And, and she said, well, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? Why won't you tell us? And that's when she opened up. And the mom, at this point, obviously has to just, I guess, listen carefully. And there are a lot of kids in this country who are holding things back. You don't know what happened to them in school. You don't know what trauma they suffered. I have a wife who was sexually abused when she was 13, 14, 15. Didn't tell anybody. I mean, didn't tell anybody till she told me before she got married. Only recently told her mom because she didn't want her mom to be mad at her. And she didn't want her mom to think that she was mad at her mom. And then you bury these things, you repress these things, and my goodness, the price and the cost. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Dr. Rose, and we're talking about young, beautiful Monica and her problems and her, her strain and stress over burying a secret and what to do about it. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happened to Monica after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we continue with Dr. Rose and when we left off well Monica had come clean talk about that moment and what the mom thought because my goodness this had to be such a relief for her but yet at the, at the same time what a tragedy for a kid to have to even experience something this awful at such a tender age oh yes and and when when I, I say advances from uh, the the uh, sister's uh, boyfriend, uh, I mean pretty 
pretty strong, pretty unwanted advances. Yep. And at first, she didn't want to share it right in front of her mom. She said, I'm willing to tell my mom, but I want to tell you first because I'm afraid that I'm going to break down. This is, this is the, the beauty of, of this girl. I'm going to break down in front of her. I'm going to start crying, and I don't want my mom to know how much I've, uh, I have been upset over this. And so I stayed with her and held her hand while she told me the story. And, of course, I couldn't help but have a mom's heart and cry at the same time with her. Uh, and I realized she's been holding this in for about two years because the little girl, is well, the, the niece, is now about two years old. And I said, oh, my goodness, no wonder. And now uh, Miss Monica is a senior, and she's about to finish high school, but she's missed so many days of school that she was about to be left back in high school, even though she had a perfect GPA. And this is where I looked over at Monica and I said, you know what, it's time. It is time to let go of all of our fears. It is time to let mom know what happened. She will not blame you. It is time to think, to not think that you have to be perfect and that if Whatever happens at school and they don't allow you to graduate, it'll be okay. You just have to take more credits. It will be okay. We have to stop living under the shackle of these fears. Miss Monica, are you ready? When we go out that door and we go get your mom and we sit down and we tell her what's happened and that you will face up to what your life really is right now, we have to be ready. Are you ready? And she looked at me. And she said, yes. I said, well, that I'm ready is not going to uh, do get the job done. So, Monica, are you ready? And finally she looked at me and she looked in my eyes and she said, I am ready, Dr. Rose. I said, let's go get your mom now. So we went and got the mom and I said, so <sighs> Miss Monica has something to tell you. And uh, I'm here to help her tell you the story if it becomes too difficult, but she wants to tell you something that happened. And she started telling the story, and she got a little stronger. She was telling it, and she said, and I wish that somebody would have been there, and I wish that somebody would have helped me at that moment, and I wish that I wouldn't have been the one to know all of these things, and he's still around the house sometimes, and I'm afraid of him, but I'm afraid of letting my, my niece's my niece's dad go and being the one to ruin the family because of what I know. And mom started crying. And I wanted to cry. And I looked over at Miss Monica and Monica said, but, but we're going to be okay, right? And mom looked up and she said, of course, we're going to be okay. This is nothing compared to my thinking that I had lost my daughter. And I had fears that he was not a, such a good guy anyway. And we're just going to go on and live our lives, and we're going to be the strong people that we know how to be. I didn't, be, I didn't grow you up to be, to be anxious and fearful of everything. I grew you up to be a strong woman. And at that moment, it was like, okay, she was determined. And I'd like to say that it was an easy path from then, but she had had all of these, um, let's say, all these shackles, all these ropes tied around her for so long that it took her body a good year to, to reacclimate to what it is really like to live and to sleep and to be able to eat and not to be anxious 
all the time anymore. So after these sessions where she would come in every week, every other week, within probably six months, she started to come off of all of those medications, the two and three sleep agents, uh, the the medication for her, the medications for her stomach, the the anti uh, anxiety medication that she was on, and to this day. Miss Monica is now in her second year of college. She aspires to be an accountant. She is as beautiful and as lovely, but now vibrant, and she could actually understand that she has a hope and a future, and Mom is finally smiling because she knows that what she brought this girl up for, for a, a beautiful uh, future that God has given her, that is still in that future for her. And what happened to this guy? I know the audience is just wondering, what happened to him? Um, Well, Mom and Dad, once they realized what had happened, uh, called the police. And even though it had been some some time in the back, uh, you know, some time ago, uh, they did do an investigation. They put a, a, uh, I guess, a a restraining order on him. Uh, And so he did not not want to be around that family. He abandoned uh, the, the sister. Uh, who was also a patient of mine, by the way, and and, and uh, he's no longer in the picture, but the family is together, they're stronger, and the little girl, who's now four years old, is mm. the loveliest, wonderful thing. And you can tell where the anxiety around her birth and the first two years of, of life left a bit of a mark on her, because she is also very prone to anxiety. But now her mom understands that that you cannot grow up a child in the bonds of fear and that you must break them, especially early, so that she can go and live her life. You know, tell me, Dr. Rose, the one thing I'm also thinking about, fear had something to do with Monica and what she was doing, but I also know people, and it's just uh, it's my oldest brother, and he was always carrying the burden for us, and so he didn't want any harm to come to us, and he would suck it up. And I also think it sounds like Monica didn't want her mom to carry the burden. Mom didn't want her sister to carry the burden. Oh, and her her little niece, what if she found out? So she was, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, jumping on that grenade for them. So not only is she a nervous type, but she may have that type of personality that wants to bear the burden and responsibility for the family. Yes, and that is very dangerous because you're not doing anybody any good. You're just postponing the inevitable. And many times, uh, like you said, I mean, they, they, they had a true, uh, like an action or something that had happened in their past that led them to have this fear. But sometimes we're just fearful of anything that could happen in the future. And so that we're constantly protecting others uh, from bearing their own, uh, you know, part of the responsibility of things. Neither one of those two things has good outcomes. And what you do is you raise up a, fe- a spirit of fear in, in, in the environment around you. And so what I say to, to uh, those young people or even the parents who are doing that is that it, it's not a thing of overtelling the story, but you sort of have to break the bond. And that bond of fear is one that will make you sick. It'll make you sick inside and out. And you have to be very prayerful about how you tell the story and how you, you uh, try to... Uh, make sure that that you know that bond is broken, but at the same time, it at some point, you're right. It it has to be broken, and uh, other people can 
bear it and for you to hide it just because you don't think that other people can bear it is not it, it it's not healthy for yourself and it's sort of discounting the the ability that others that are around you have and as parents we've always got to be able to keep that line of communication open so someone can share something like with us dr rose you got about 30 seconds talk about that Yes, that, that is so true, and and that's a line of communication that we have to keep open day by day. Don't expect that your child gets home and you haven't really talked to them, you haven't truly been uh, had an honest communication with them, and haven't shared breakfast and lunch uh, and or dinners with them. And all of a sudden, they come in and they look like they're all upset, or maybe you think they are doing drugs, and that you're just going to open that up. That will take time. But the best thing to do is to make sure that you're proactive about that relationship. Eat breakfast and and, and dinners with your child. Have an open relationship. Have it so that your child knows that you're the the alpha and the omega, in a sense, on this earth uh, for, for your child to come and speak to and be able to clear the air with. And that's the way that you make sure that that uh, you do preventive medicine when it comes to your emotional child upbringing. Well, so well said. And Dr. Rose, thanks so much for all you do. And we'll look forward to more stories from you in the near future. Well, I look forward to sharing them with you. You bet. Thank you so much. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein, as always, great stories about how to be a mom and, most important, how to raise sturdy kids. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. stories and you're listening to a song about James Dean because on this day in history in 1931 James Dean was born and so for the next two segments for the next 30 minutes we're going to talk about James Dean's life we're going to start with his death on September 30th 1955 James Dean was driving his brand new $7,000 Porsche Spider along California Route 466 at 5.45 p.m., the 24-year-old actor was killed when he hit a Ford sedan at an intersection. Only one of Dean's movies, East of Eden, had been released at the time of his death. Rebel Without a Cause and Giant opened shortly afterwards. But he was already on his way to superstardom, and the crash, well, it made him a legend. His performances in East of Eden and Giant earned him back-to-back nominations for Best Leading Actor. Here's James Dean's close friend, legendary actor, Martin Landau. Jimmy represented something at that moment in time. Uh, he became an icon. Up until that moment, grown-ups set the styles and fashions, the music, the clothing. After World War II, a different kind of thing started happening when the 
young men came back from the war who survived it, a different kind of animal that represented unrest and dissatisfaction with the status quo. And Jimmy's early television work and his movies, all three movies, represented a young American who was not happy with his lot and the way things were. Here's director Elia Kazan, who at the time had just finished shooting On the Waterfront, starring Marlon Brando, and was preparing to shoot James Dean's first film, East of Eden. There he was, and I had an intuition. I said, this is Cal, this is, this is the guy right here. He, uh, he did a thing that always attracts me. He wasn't polite to me, and that always sort of makes me feel he's not, not straining to butter, you know, to butter me up right like that. He has a real, uh, a real sense of himself. Oh, he said, I'll take you for a ride in my motorbike, which is, he was, it was very hard for him to talk, and riding me on the back of his motorbike, which I did like on the streets of New York, was his way of communicating with me, of saying, well, I hope you like me, or look at my skills, or whatever. So then, so <laughs> he had his own, you saw what he's like, he had his own way, and uh, I thought it was perfect for the part. I mean, I, I, I thought it was an extreme grotesque of a boy. I thought it was a twisted boy, and I thought, twisted by the denial of love. And it turned out, as I got to know his father and I got to know about his family, that he had been, in fact, twisted by the denial of love. And boy, what a theme that is in East of Eden, and what a performance. If you ever get a chance, rent it if you haven't seen it. It's Dean at his best, and I think it changed acting as we know it. James Dean lost his mom to cancer when he was nine years old. He also lost his father, who immediately sent his son to live with his aunt and uncle on their farm in the small town of Fairmount, Indiana. Here again is Martin Landau setting up a scene from East of Eden. He understood pain. Young people usually don't have that kind of pain or don't wear it as externally. One of the things that made Jim notice was his vulnerability. He understood a mother he didn't have. East of Eden was like a chance to meet his mother again, if one accepts that. Jim, your mother passed away, and it was unfortunate. She left this young boy motherless, and he had to be raised by a father who didn't understand him, and an aunt and uncle on a farm. But we've arranged for you to spend a little time with your mother again. What do you think of that? Wow. There we are. Let me talk to you. Please. I gotta talk to you. And those scenes are very well acted. Because they ring... Joe! True. Joe! Get out of here. Emotional pain. We respond and we cover it up, but it's hard to when it's there. Well, the truth of the matter is that Jimmy was haunted throughout his life, his short life, by his need for a father. His mother uh, abandoned him by dying when he was nine. 
When he went back to Indiana after his mother's death, his father promised to be there. Of course, wasn't there. And so he was, a, a, in a sense, an orphan. He was so desperate for the approval of his father. So Jimmy was left with a, with a, um, a gigantic hole in his personality, the hunger for a daddy for someone to connect with him, to nurture him and to take care of him and to guide him and to lead him. And by the way, it's a theme we touch on over and over again on this show. What happens to boys and girls without a father? Kazan saw how Dean related to his actual father prior to the beginning of East of Eden and was able to direct Dean to utilize that. Kazan saw the film as a documentary documenting Dean's psychological state. James Dean immersed himself in the role as Cal, who tries unsuccessfully to earn the love of his father, played by Raymond Massey. Here's a scene where Cal is asked by his father to read from the Bible. Dean knew that Raymond Massey was a devout Christian, and so he would curse under his breath in between takes to get the best reaction from Massey. Here's director Elia Kazan. On the way to the studio, Jimmy said, can you stop here a minute? My father lives in there. We stopped, and out comes a man that was as tense as Jimmy was. And they hardly could relate. They hardly could look at each other. It was the goddamnest reaffirmation of the hunch that I had that I've ever seen. They could hardly relate. They hardly talked. They mumbled at each other. And then Jimmy, I don't know what the hell he stopped to see him for, because in a few minutes he said, let's go. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgivest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Go on. Knowing Kazan, I know how he worked with him. Six. And I suggest a little slower, Cal, and you don't have to read the verse numbers. For this shall everyone that... He nurtured Jimmy. He gave him all the privilege that Jimmy needed and the freedom that Jimmy needed. I unto him. Sila. Seven. Not the numbers, Cal. And Raymond Massey, of course, being an old-fashioned uh, actor, uh, um, couldn't f- understand that kind of uh, actor-studio kind of uh, freedom. Eight. You have no repentance. You're bad. Through and through, bad. Dean was driving Raymond Massey crazy. You're right. I am bad. I knew that for a long time. He'd change the lines, he'd move positions, he'd, he would do, depending on how he felt at the moment. And it was driving Raymond Massey crazy, who went to Kazan and said, listen, I can't stand this boy, I don't know what the hell he's doing. He's saying not the lines that are in the script. I'm an actor, I say the lines that are written. And Kazan said, oh, I understand. I'll do my best, I'll, I'll talk to him, I'll straighten it out, don't worry. Then he goes to James Dean and says, listen, he's getting irritated. Keep it up. Keep it up because that's the color I want in the scene. I think at the end, Raymond Massey could have killed his own son. Indeed. And we're going to hear more of this remarkable story from the actors and the directors who knew James Dean. This day in history, James Dean, born in 1931.
This is Our American Stories, and that's Bruce Springsteen's Adam Raised the Cane. And he wrote about father-son issues and continues to. And it makes him the songwriter he is. And James Dean was pursuing the same blood in the same vein. And that's that father, that absent father. And that's what East of Eden was all about. It was Cain and Abel's story reworked. And Cain's offering is rejected by the father and the distant father, Raymond Massey, the distant, unloving father in this particular case. And then what happens next? Well, rent the movie. See East of Eden. And when we left off, we had just talked about a scene in which Dean was just getting under Massey's skin and Elijah Kazan was letting him do it. And boy, it's there on the screen. See it. See it. It's all I can ask you to do. Here's James Dean's buddy and buddies on the release of this classic film. We're kind of just hanging and talking, and uh, he said, you know, let's go down to the Egyptian theater. And I said, what's happening? He says, they're previewing East of Eden. He pulled his hat down, he got his glasses on, he turned his back, you know, to the crowd as they were coming out. And he said, cover me, you know, like, I want people to see me, basically, so I kind of covered him. And it, to me, it was the same reaction when I walked out of my first Fellini movie. I was stunned. It was Jimmy, but it was, it was Jimmy gigantically. It was on this huge screen. And it was the, the emotional impact was phenomenal. Some people couldn't talk, and they were, you know, the guy's brilliant genius. I mean, all these great things were being said, and, and some, you know, it was just like this whole moment happened, you know, and I was there with Jimmy when he saw it happen. And he says, it worked. He was like a little kid. He was really excited. He says, it worked, man, it worked. And it worked. And then there was the worldwide cultural earthquake from his second movie, Rebel Without a Cause, a film about a lonely young man struggling to fit in at a new high school. Here's the screenwriter, Stuart Stern. Along with everything else, Jimmy had that curious androgyny. See tomorrow. That made him appealing to so many people, disturbing to so many people. That began to eat away at these formal attitudes about what makes a man. And it was very important to me in Rebel to ask that question. Dean redefined masculinity on the big screen in that movie and as a consequence, the world over. That redefinition had to do with his sensitive transparency and also his vulnerability. The old macho heroes were out. The emotionally available anti-heroes were in. Dean had given youth all over America a reason to cut loose from the stern, manly stereotype, and they did. There were two pillars in the 1950s. Elvis changed the music. James Dean changed our lives. Here's a young Elvis Presley being asked about James Dean. They predict that uh, uh, Elvis Presley will be another James Dean. Now, have you heard that? Uh, I've heard something about it. But uh, I, would, I would never compare myself in any way to James Dean because James Dean was a genius. James Dean was a genius. Here's Dean's close friend and fellow actor from Rebel Without a Cause and Giant, 
Dennis Hopper, who passed away in 2010. My agent said, that's, that's James Dean. And I turned around and audibly said, that's James Dean? I, I at the time thought I was the best young actor in the world. First time I saw Jimmy work was just, just amazing. I, I was a really uh, a very uh, proficient, uh, uh, what I call the English school of acting, where I, I did line readings, gestures, uh, preconceived everything, knew exactly what I was going to do. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever seen anybody improvise or, or uh, create things that weren't on the written page. I was watching the work, and the work was incredible. So I, I didn't know what he was doing, but I wanted to know. And then on the Chicky Run uh, and uh, Rebel Without a Cause, I finally uh, physically grabbed him and threw him into the car, and I said, I've got to know what you're doing. Uh, how could he help me? How could he help me understand uh, to do this? He asked me, before he volunteered any information about the work, he asked me if I hated my mother and my father. And I thought this was strange questioning. You know, and uh, he said, you did, didn't you? And I said, well, yeah, I did. I, I resented them and I hated them. He said, they want you to do something else besides be an actor. And I said, yeah, they want me to be an engineer, lawyer, doctor, some, you know, anything but an actor. And he said, well, that's why you, you want to be an actor because of that. And he said, I, I lost my mother when I was very young and, uh, when she first left me, I used to go to her grave. I used to sneak out and go to her grave and, and cry on her grave and say, Mother, Mother, why did you leave me? And that turned into, Mother, I hate you. I resent you. I'm going to show you I'm going to be somebody. Uh, I'm going to be great. And he said, you got to start learning how to do things and not show them. And I said, what does that mean, do something and not show it? And he said, well, like if you smoke a cigarette. Just gotta, you got to learn to smoke the cigarette, not act smoking the cigarette. Just smoke the cigarette. If you're drinking like a cup of coffee or, an, or a drink or whatever, you've got to drink the drink, not act drinking the drink. And if you're looking, you've got to look. The easiest thing to do is to act that. But in point of fact, you must really look, really drink, really smoke, and really be in the moment. The moment-to-moment reality. Moment-to-moment reality. And never preconceive any ideas about what the, how the scene should turn out or whatever. And that's so hard as an actor not to preconceive things. Here's David Dalton, author of the unequal Dean biography, James Dean, The Mutant King. There's... Um Many people who've never seen a movie of James Dean that idolize him simply from the posters. The, you know, that with him slouching against the wall, the red jacket, the cigarette dangling. It's, it's a hieroglyphic of uh, teen angst that is just so perfect that really nobody has replaced it. John Lennon once said, without Jimmy Dean, the Beatles would never have existed. Here's film critic Leonard Maltin. I can't think of another actor who achieved stardom so quickly, who held it for such a short time, and then kept it for such a long time. James Dean became a star in one calendar year, and then left us. But he's still being talked about, he's still being revered, he's still being iconized 40 years later. 
I don't think there's another example like it in the entire history of movies. And there isn't. And so let's end with a performance by James Dean in East of Eden. It's one of the final scenes in the movie. And James Dean is, he's on a swing in front of the house. And out comes Raymond Massey, his father. And, well, his brother's gone. And dad's wanting to know what happened. And again, East of Eden is just a metaphor for the Cain and Abel story. Let's take a listen to what made James Dean, James Dean. Where's Aaron? I don't know. It's not my brother's keeper. Where did you go? For a ride. What did you quarrel about? You. You're angry about the money. No, I'm not angry. I like it. I think it's great. I'm going to go away. I'm going to take that money with me. I think I'll start me a little business. Just like my mother did. What do you know about your mother? I know where she is. I know what she is, and I know why she left you. Couldn't stand it. I know why you didn't love me. Because I'm like my mother, and you never forgave yourself for having loved her. Tonight, I even tried to buy your love. But now I don't want it anymore. I can't use it anymore. Don't talk to your father like that. I don't want any kind of love anymore. It doesn't pay off. I don't want any kind of love anymore. It doesn't pay off. And James Dean, short life, a dynamic life. Nobody changed acting more than Dean in the American cinema, in American acting. Look at Marlon Brando's work. Straight up to the current cast of stars. It all comes from him. Every bit of it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of James Dean. Born on this day in history in 1931. As always, all of our This Days in History are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. I want to take the breath I see